Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Thank you very much. Welcome along to the Slacktivist Action Group. The victory for Donald Trump is that the alt-right have had their victory in the United States. They're basically a bunch of trolls and hackers. And computers these days, they've given sad male adolescents the feeling that they have some sort of power. Hacking everything now, aren't they? The Internet of Things. Even worried that they can hack your kettle now. I mean, that's a worrying time, isn't it? You come home, the kettle's boiling, the coffee maker's on the floor, the fridge door is open, your heating's knackered. You think maybe you've been a victim of some bizarre burglary, but no, just some 12-year-old in Macedonia having a fucking laugh. (laughs) And these all right, not content with having a go at the immigrants, are they? They are now having a go at women. Although women, their wages tends to be two-thirds that of men. That's not enough. For these alt-right, as well as having a go, they also distile themselves as meninists, having a go at the feminists. Because us men, we've been trampled on for centuries, haven't we? <laughs> Delicate creatures with our luxuriant hair in our ears and our curvaceous beer bellies and our temperature-sensitive ball sacks <laughs> with our accompanying morning erections which don't usually mean that we're sexually aroused, usually just means that we need to go to the loo, but our massive brains can't quite sort out the difference between the two. Men, we're very complex, aren't we? Oh, yeah, we need at least five things. Food, drink, toilet, sex, sleep. Usually in that order. It's like a little checklist for men, isn't it? Oh, I'm not feeling very well. Well, let's go through them. Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Do I need the loo? Oh, well, must be time to crack one off then. Oh, I feel a little bit sleepy now. Oh, look, I can't see my own ball sack. I must be cold. That's essentially how it works for me. Of course, you know, we do have emotions. You know, I've got a five-year-old kid. When he was born, I had a little tear in my eye. First day at school, I got a little tear in my eye. And now he's just the wrong height. So when he runs at me for a cuddle, I get a little tear in my eye. And I cry at films. I cried at Moonlight. 
I cried when it didn't win Best Oscar. And then I cried when it got Best Oscar about 30 seconds later. But men, we can occasionally talk about our emotions. Usually, though, it's usually after we've had a few beers and you wake up the next day and think, oh, I did. I talked about my feelings today. And then you remember back to what you actually said. And you think, oh, no. No, what I said was bollocks. I didn't actually... That's not how I feel at all. And you suddenly think, I talked about my feelings, but I gave the wrong emotions. And it doesn't make you think, oh, I'm going to talk about my feelings more. You just think, oh, no, I'm not going out and drinking Stella again. Oh, that was a complete mistake. So now, you know, you think if you do want to talk about your problems, what should you do? And my advice, often if you're struggling to talk about your emotions to other people, try taxi drivers. Oh, telling your emotions to a taxi driver is brilliant for two reasons. One, it stops the taxi driver from telling you their feelings. And two, it's amazing how much quicker you get to your destination. <laughs> Men, often, they make themselves feel better, not by talking about their feelings, but by picking on people who are weaker than them. Now... You know, if your politics is essentially picking on people who aren't doing as well as you are, that makes you something of a wanker, doesn't it, in my book? And it's not just politics, some politics at the moment that is not necessarily showing compassion. A lot of comedy at the moment, you could argue, not showing compassion. I would argue that you can either laugh or you can think. But I suppose the ultimate often, isn't it, is, is to laugh and think. But that's multitasking, isn't it? Very hard for blokes, that. <laughs> so maybe what you really want, isn't it, is you want an audience laughing now and thinking later. What you certainly don't want is an audience thinking now, <laughs> laughing later, having to follow them home, suddenly waiting for a chuckle and then going, finally! <laughs> so with that, ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome our three guests for the night, Stephen Kinnock MP, Hugo Rifkin from The Times and Joe Caulfield. <laughs> Thank you very much. Welcome along. This is our, our Slacktivist Action Group. Tonight, we usually start off, we have a little confession just to bond as a group. Hopefully the guests confess something that they could be uh, slightly better at, less slack at in an ideal world. So, um, Joe, if you'd like to kick us off, if that's OK. Well, there is a lot of things that I'm slack about, but the one I think that gets me more in trouble is I'm quite slack on Facebook at reading other people's comments. I tend to read the post and go, oh, this is what I think, without... Well, it means that basically often I misread the mood of a post. So I will put something that I think is funny or sarky and then realise, oh, everybody else has been very serious and supportive. Like my friend put up a picture of her son. Let's call him Lucas, but he's not, right? And it said, um, Lucas at his first Tiny Tots football game, and I was quite interested, I didn't know about Tiny Tots football, so I look at it, and they've got little nets, little sponge footballs, and there was Lucas in the picture. He's obviously trying to kick the ball, but he's also falling over as he's doing it. So I put, I put him up for transfer, looks a bit shit. <laughs> it was only when I looked at the other posts that I realised everybody else had been very supportive. <laughs> the one before mine read, oh, Lucas looks brilliant, Betty will play for England one day. And I was, I was just thinking, but he's falling over, he's clearly, it's not going to be his thing. I thought the only way he's going to play for England if it's some sort of Make-A-Wish Foundation day out. You, and you I, haven't I seen the England that. team recently. <laughs> <laughs> Hugo, what would you, you like to offer for Oh, see, mine's probably social media as well. I'm, I'm really slack at not replying to mental people on Twitter. <laughs> it's a real problem for me. Like, I, I write for a living. I get paid quite well to write for a living. My words are worth money. Yet any lunatic who comes at me on Twitter, I just sort of have to reply. I can't, I can't, I can't help it. It's a weakness. 
I mean, like, there's this weird body of opinion that exists on, among crazy people on the internet that I used to be a killer for the Israeli Secret Service, for example. And you'd think, <laughs> this has been going on for years, you'd think by now I'd be bored with it. Yeah. You'd think by now I'd be like, oh, just another one of those. But I'm not. I'm just like, oh, go on, tell me, when? Before I was a gossip journalist or after I was a gossip journalist? And um, I just can't resist. I just need to, need that to engage. That is a fascinating alter ego you have there, though. Mm-hmm. We're all, well, we all want to now read your Twitter timeline to find out exactly yeah. what you've been doing for the Israeli Secret Service. Deep cover. It's based on the fact that in my Twitter avatar photo, I'm wearing a green shirt. And people contact me and say, and also because I'm Jewish, and people contact me and say, is this from your time in the IDF? And I say, it's a shirt from Top Man. <laughs> and they say, yeah, but were you in the IDF anyway? And then things kind of deteriorate. Yeah. Stephen, what about you? Well, politicians are supposed to be really good at uh, sending Christmas cards out every year, and I'm absolutely rubbish. I'm rubbish at Christmas in general, um, and I'm particularly rubbish at, at Christmas cards, so I, I'm trying to be a bit less slack on that. But I did receive a fantastic uh, Christmas card from our chief whip this Christmas just gone. It's a famous picture of Boris on the zip wire, and underneath uh, there's a quote from Exodus 23:20, which goes, Behold, I am sending an angel ahead of you <laughs> to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. <clears throat> That's Boris, <Okay>. everybody. <laughs> so, Stephen, it's been a, a mixed week, shall we say, for the, for the Labour Party. Uh, you mean between shit and really shit? <laughs> Well, some people are viewing it as, as one or all other people not, not for it. But let's start with the good news. Paul Nuttall didn't get elected in Stoke. Hooray uh, for that. Yes, yeah. yeah. At least three people, slacktivists, going, going wild. <laughs> that slacktivism gone mad, that is. <laughs> Obviously, a man who claimed he lived in Stoke then turned out he didn't. A man who claimed that he had a PhD then didn't. A man who claimed he'd lost close personal friends at Hillsborough turned out he didn't. He isn't the MP, but who's to say... In a few years' time, it won't say on the website that he is. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing I loved about Nuttall was, um, you know, he kept turning up in that sort of tweed hat and tweed coat, sort of looking like a third-rate bookie. Apparently, shares in tweed have plummeted <laughs> since Nuttall. So there is some justice. Yeah, in the... he looks like a really bad Nigel Farage tribute act. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And Nigel Farage, it was reported, wasn't it, that he's scared to go outside his own house because of the liberal media, the the hate that they have engendered towards him. Scary bunch. There's one over here. We already know he works for Mossad. Exactly, yeah. But this is the man, wasn't it, who said you'd be nervous if a Romanian family moved in next door to you. You'd obviously be nervous if Nigel Farage moved in next door to you, especially because nowadays, don't they, delivery people are always telling you can you take a package for your next-door neighbour, <laughs> yeah. you'd be nervous to take one for Nigel Farage, wouldn't you? He's, he's pathetic, Nigel Farage. It's like he used to be, what, he was scared of Romanians next door, he was scared of Polish voices on the train, now he's bloody scared of me. I mean, put yourself together. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. If, if he is very scared of all these things that are outside, maybe he'll just stay inside and then we'll all be very happy. I would advise that, Nigel. It's too much for you. Just stay inside. Well, he's, got, he's off to the States all the time, isn't he? He's uh, Not, not often enough. Leader for Trump, isn't he? Yeah. So let, let's go to Copeland. Um, some talk about it being Sellafield. Jeremy Corbyn's views on nuclear weapons not gone down well on the doorstep necessarily. His idea was to keep the nuclear submarines but to arm them with conventional weapons. That didn't seem to be necessarily... 
the, the best of both worlds. Mm. Yeah, it, surely you either get rid of nuclear weapons altogether. That's the third way in action. Though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or you keep the nuclear submarines and arm them with nuclear weapons. Because the whole idea, surely, yeah. of having the nuclear submarines is that they can hide in the vast ocean and yeah. they're very hard to detect. Not much point in them hiding in the vast oceans if nobody gives a shit no. about finding <laughs> them. They're loaded with sort of flowers and uh, daffodils. Uh, look, I mean, the loss in Copeland is just disastrous for us. I mean, it's, uh, we've held that seat for 80 years and uh, generally speaking, oppositions do not lose seats that they hold to the government at by-elections. So uh, there's a massive job of work to be done to get us back on the right path. But what we've got to stop doing as well is making excuses for why it ha- I've, I've heard just about everything from it's the mainstream media, it's the establishment, even though it'd be quite weird if people were voting against the establishment then voted for the Tories. I don't quite see how that works. Um, there was the weather, the Doris, Storm Doris, apparently. Uh, then I think somebody said it's because nobody who votes Labour owns a car, so the weather was too bad for them. So it's kind of got to the stage where it's the dog ate my by-election. And uh, we need to actually own up, to have, you know, look hard at what the real... Uh, issues are and take it I did one, learn one fact from, from the by-election which I was unaware of. A nuclear submarine, apparently if they lose contact with the Prime Minister, um, they're supposed to listen to Radio 4 to oh. know what to do. It's a bizarre idea, isn't it? It's like a surreal experience in the middle of a nuclear war. Shall we fire? Shall we fire? Don't know. The Archers is on at the moment. <laughs> Sorry. We'll know more in 15 minutes. Oh, are, you d- are you telling me you can get Radio 4 on a nuclear submarine under the ocean? Because you can't get it in my kitchen. <laughs> it is bizarre, but that's the technology. But you, you've written saying that um, Theresa May needs an opposition and that she doesn't have one at the moment, and that you were saying that surely this was a perfect time for an opposition in the sense that she had a choice between America and Europe. She's sort of gone along the American route, and you were saying that this should surely, you know, with Trump in power, be an opportunity but, but, you know, I suppose you could argue that the largest opposition in that direction at the moment is the Speaker. And uh, he's supposed to be impartial, isn't he? So Yeah, look, I mean, people have spent, what, like a decade, if not more, complaining that our politics is too centrist, everyone's mushed up in the middle. So well, this is what you get, right, when it's not. And basically the problem is that the only people Theresa May is scared of, that the government is scared of, are to their right. God knows why, they don't win any elections, but they're scared of UKIP, they're scared of the right of the Conservative Party. So everything they do, the whole centre of gravity pulls them to the right. They're not scared of Labour. They're not worried about Labour. They're not worried about Labour voters at all. So they're just getting madder and madder and madder. And, like, and so the only... It's like um, the sort of opposition they've got to the right is like, it's like the people who chase you when you run down a hill, so you go faster and faster and faster and you can't stop. So they're going for the hardest Brexit. They're getting their nose as far up Trump's bottom as they can. And the only people they're scared about are the people who are telling them to go harder and further. And it's horrible. The, 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 yeah, so I can, <laughs> it's going to be see. great. <laughs> I, I can see it, but it, on the flip side, there's also Theresa May getting involved in, in industrial strategies, saying she's willing to intervene. Well, she says she is, mm. but will she? I mean, it's, it's, again, you can't do both of these things. She's got, the, she's got the right of her own party and the right of the country basically fighting for what? For, the, for Britain to be this kind of sort of out-of-Europe Singapore, deregulated concessions to businesses to attract them out of the rest of Europe. And then she's simultaneously saying, but we're going to make life harder for business and, and better for people who work in business. And you can't do both of these things. And the one she's going to do, I think, is the one that cleaves her to the right, because that's the only thing she cares about. 
it was certainly interesting just as she started talking about just about managing and then being pictured at, at home, I think, in, in your Sunday newspaper, uh, wearing uh, le- leather trousers costing £995. It certainly... It was a mixed message, So we yeah. sound... I'm not, not necessarily saying that she should have uh, been photographed in a toweling leisure suit from Matalan, but uh, maybe something, something slightly less ostentatious might have been... Uh, they weren't nice either, were they? They were flares. They were big brown leather flares. They looked really sweaty. Yeah. Sort of thought yeah. really. Yeah, dr- no, you, yeah. If you're relaxing at home, you want something soft and breathable, yeah. not something that makes you a bit sweaty. Is I mean, it? My, my, my leather flares are not good in that, in that regard. May also maybe think of people who do wear leather trousers. The secret is you get you talc yourself into them. So I didn't like thinking about her being talked in before the oh. photo shoot, because that's how they come off and on. But if and it if gets you sweaty, sweat. that yeah, would create a kind of place. Yeah. <laughs> I, do f- I don't want to depress Stephen, but I, I do feel Labour Party is in such a terrible position, especially that Labour were campaigning that they're going to keep the hospital open mm. in that constituency. But people wanted a hospital less than they wanted to have you in power, which is terrible, because everyone loves a hospital. They were going, oh, we have the hospital. Oh, not with them. Oh, no. It's <laughs> yeah. terrible. The NHS top back top of the agenda. I mean, with A and E weights going up, sort of twelve-hour weights. People worried about not being seen, but they're obviously worried about how much they're clocking up in the car park at the same time. For yeah, <laughs> yeah. But why don't people make the connect? People, nobody's making the connection. Like you're, you're sort of saying, everyone is complaining about the NHS, but they're not connecting it with the Conservative Party. They're no. just going. Don't know why the NHS is so shit, isn't it? It's just, don't know what's going on. I think the the Brexit debate is absolutely dominating Mm. at the moment. I think one of the reasons we succeeded in Stoke was that the team there was prepared to go outside Labour's comfort zone, which tends to be the NHS and talking about public services. And they actually really went out and listened to people and what they were saying about Brexit, what they were saying about immigration. And by, I think, reaching out, we were able to push UKIP back and also remind people that you know, why should we allow uh, the right-wing nationalists to own the flag? Uh, you know, it's our flag, and we believe in it just as much as anybody else does. And I think that was one of the reasons we succeeded in Stoke. In Copeland, it became all... We, we tried very hard to talk about the NHS as much as we could, but people really wanted to talk about security issues, immigration, Brexit as well. Um, and that's where we really struggled. Yeah, I, I think mean, you won Stoke because Paul Nuttall kept talking. No, that helped as well. No, I mean, uh, Nuttall imploded, and yeah. that, that helped us. But I think we could have still lost it if we hadn't fought the right kind of campaign. You, you well. may have heard a glass being kicked out. <laughs> that was Slacktivist who was absolutely furious. They were, oh, livid. Your constituency is Aberavon, which yep. includes the Port Talbot Steelworks. You can, obviously, if you're going between Cardiff and Swansea, you can see that, uh, see that from the motorway. Never has the motorway looked so good, in my, uh, my humble opinion. <laughs> I'm not expecting the local MP to agree with that sentiment <laughs> necessarily. But uh, some good news from the steelworks. Hopefully it's been saved. One of the reasons suggested that it has been saved is now that British steel is, is that much more um, economic in the sense that the pound's down 20% after Brexit. As a passionate European, has this been somewhat tricky for you, Stephen? <laughs> Um, well, first of all, the steelworks is a thing of beauty. You're just not looking at it in the right way. Fair enough. You're officially invited you have. Yeah. to come to Port Talbot and, and see it uh, working. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to see. But I think the devaluation of the pound is certainly helping in the short run, but I think it's fool's gold. 
because um, the steelworks is based on uh, a lot of raw materials that has to be brought in, put into the blast furnace right at the start of the process, and we import that stuff, coking, coal, iron ore, that's imported from all over the world. At the moment, that is stockpiled, so it was bought when the pound was still strong. But as we start getting into the next quarter, we'll start to see the weaker pound and the effect. So you can't run a sustainable business on the basis of currency fluctuations. And what we've been campaigning for is to get the government to really make the reforms it needs to make on energy prices, on business rates, on dealing with the dumping of Chinese steel. Uh, and we're still you know, campaigning for that as hard as we can. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hugo, you um, wrote an article uh, over the weekend about fake news. Mm. A lot of it about at the moment. La La Land winning best film is a (laughs) perfect example of fake news. You know, obviously we had Trump last week talking about the the terrible event in Sweden. Yeah. And everybody was uh, looking for last night what had happened in Sweden and and nothing had happened. The president's supposed to be calming the public, not, uh, not spreading fears. Yeah, well, see, I mean, La La Land, that's actually not an example of fake news. That's an example of wrong news. Right. And there's a, there's a really crucial difference. And this is, this is what Trump does. You're just like Trump. Am I? Oh, yeah, no. just like him. Yeah. Just like him. So no, it was Jeremy Corbyn, according to Emily Thornbridge. Because <laughs> what, he, what he does is he will happily conflate mistakes that get made in the media, which will always happen, with people lying on purpose like he does. Right, and he says that these are the same thing. Uh, I mean, Trump is the—he's the king of fake news. You know, he came to—he um, came to prominence politically uh, as part of the Bertha movement, pretending Barack Obama wasn't American. You know, that, that is—that is the fakest news. Um, and what I was writing about last week was there is suddenly a huge amount of fake news floating around on the internet, floating around on social media. It's misleading people. By some estimates, it played a sort of decisive role in the last U.S. election. And I wanted to find out who was making it and where it was coming from. Basically, and obviously some of it coming from from Donald Trump. Yes, uh, Kel- Kellyanne Conway, mm. famous for the uh, the Bowling Green Bowling Massacre. Bowling Green Massacre. Yeah, I mean, I, I survived that one. Yes. Yeah. IDF training. Yeah. Everybody survived it. Yeah. It didn't actually happen. We'd have certainly been surprised to find the Glencoe Massacre was in fact just two Campbells having some illegal funding issues. <laughs> there is a there is a whole sort of political direction which Trump and his administration are at the heart of, where they benefit from this massive uncertainty about what's true and what's not true in our media. So they can come out and they can say extraordinary dishonest things that his inauguration crowd was larger than Obama's or that there was a Bowling Green massacre or whatever. And you, they get told that's not a fact and they say it's an alternative fact. Who do you believe? They thrive on the fact that people are losing faith in traditional media. And part of the reason why they're losing faith in traditional media is because there's a lot of other media around that is bollocks. And it's, just, and, it's, and it's made up and people don't quite know which bit to trust. Obviously, there's this accusation that Trump is, is following Putin, following his example. Um, and you were saying the Russian state media have been doing it for years. Mm. Um, recently, they reported that the EU 
had run out of vegetables. Yep. And obviously we, we'd spent years reporting that they'd had nothing in their shops at, you know, mm-hmm. lots of queues. We run out of courgettes for a week and uh, it's payback yep. time, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> they, said, they said we'd run out of vegetables. They also said quite recently that the Queen had met up with the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church to plan for Armageddon. Which I don't think she had. No. I didn't check that well, one, Well, she's actually. cut down on all her engagements, so I don't <laughs> think so. Yeah. yeah. No, she said... She, the quote, they'd given her a quote as well. She'd said, um, I'm not... What is it? I'm not excited. I'm not concerned about Christmas. I'm concerned about the beating drums of war. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That is the Christmas speech we're looking yeah. forward yeah. to, isn't it? <laughs> That's um, one for my Christmas card. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, Russia has done this for years. Russia has circulated disinformation. Stephen, you'll know. You, 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 you're, oh, yeah. you're in Russia for a long time. Mm, yeah. um, but um, they've circulated disinformation quite openly. And the idea isn't to make people believe that what is not true is true. The idea is to make people doubt everything. And, uh, and Russian state media is very good at it. And it now spreads in more pervasive, subtle ways around our media too. And, well, and obviously it was prevalent during the, the US election campaign, the, the comic... <laughs> du- doubly that's cross now, again, yeah. doubly cross. <laughs> the slacterist revolution, I think that's great. <laughs> Two glasses being kicked over within five <laughs> minutes. But the yeah, comic ping-pong, the, the story that uh, Hillary Clinton yeah. was running a paedophile ring out of a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C., as well as satanic abuse. Mm. This was, I mean... There was a man who'd gone to self-investigate, went to the pizza restaurant itself, fired his weapon after about 45 minutes, and so was arrested by the police. So all the news channels then started reporting yeah. this particular thing. So fake news had led to real news, which led to more people finding out about the fake news, which led to more people thinking it must be true. Yeah. The world has gone absolutely crazy, hasn't it? It's a real... And, and it's speaking from, like, a newspaper perspective, it's a real problem whether you report this stuff or not. This, I mean, this guy, he picked up on this rumour on kind of crazy websites. He drove for, like, 400 miles with his assault rifle, went into this completely harmless pizza restaurant, shot it up, looked for the secret tunnels full of abused children and Hillary Clinton, didn't find them... Put down his, he had two guns, put down his guns on a, on, a, on a beer keg, apparently, and surrendered himself to the FBI. And the New York Times kind of caught him on the way out, and he said, I regret how I've handled the situation. <laughs> <laughs> really, do you? Do you know? And again, we, we, have, we have a problem about how we, how we report this, because every little bit gets seized on and magnified and misrepresented, not always on purpose, sometimes just by crazy people who think they're telling the truth. And people want to believe dramatic things rather than mundane things, and everything can spiral out of control. And some people like to edge it along because it serves their political agenda. And the reason was that the, the owner of the pizza restaurant was a, he was a supporter of the Democratic Party. So when they hacked the mm-hmm. emails, this was all came up. The theory went around on various websites that there were various code words yep. for paedophilia and for, um, for satanic abuse. And the, the code words were cheese yeah. and pizza. Yeah. <laughs> and margarita. Yeah. 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 What, what, is, what does pepperoni mean? Yeah, exactly. like, well. But the thing is, you know, given that you're a pizza owner, you're going to use those words a lot. So the conspiracy theories were obviously thinking, my God, there's an awful lot of this stuff going on. <laughs> well, and it, it feeds on itself and it spirals and grows. So, like, people start digging and researching and somebody discovered in part of the hacked WikiLeaks email that some organisation funded by George Soros, who's a major Democratic Party donor, had paid a large amount of money to this pizza restaurant. So they were like, well, clearly, that shows that he's in on the Hillary Clinton paedophile ring. And he actually paid a large... Not even him, the organisation he part-funded had paid a lot of money to this pizza restaurant because they were having a party in the pizza restaurant. 
But that, that's the easy explanation. No one wants to believe that. Everyone wants and to think there's the Given there's the that Americans will have a court case, you can imagine why Hillary Clinton wouldn't want to do anything about the websites that have been sort of promulgating this during the election. But given that they, you know, Melania Trump is now taking the Daily Mail website for reporting that she was an escort agent or whatever, mm-hmm. then surely Hillary Clinton, if people have been calling her a paedophile and satanic abuse, you're surprising that she's not going through the courts with that? Well, it depends how it's done. I mean, Amer- firstly, American libel law is different from ours and more complicated. Secondly, she doesn't necessarily know where, who is, who's writing these sites, who's funding them, where they're coming from. They're based in other parts of the world. They're hidden. They're quite hard to trace. And also, what a lot of them are doing are reporting allegations floating around on social media. It's a bit like the, 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 the Westminster paedophile scandal we had here that ended up being reported on because people reported on what was sort of being rumoured. And it's quite hard from a legal perspective to really get a knife and a crack and, 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 and open it up. If you're reporting on something that's already in the public domain, it's, it's questionable to what extent you're, you're liable. So it, it's, it's not that simple. I think the sort of the problem as well is if, with American history, is if you look back at things we now know that American governments did, you can see why conspiracy theorists go, oh, that could be true. I mean, yeah. not that thing, but there are a lot of things, incredible things that they did, and you go, well, that's crazy. Oh, and you gave money to these people, and then you went to that country, and you did that, and, and that, that, those things are all true. All I can think about is that we were talking about nasty sex, and I used the phrase knife in the crack. She's <laughs> <laughs> just destroying me. <laughs> no, no, no problems at all. Nobody else made that link apart from no, yeah. you. Yeah. you were the only one. Yeah. There we yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, don't worry at all. Um, <laughs> but we obviously know we've had this fake news about you. You've, you've said that you, you know, yeah. a lot of people think you're part of Mossad. Either of you two uh, had, had fake news spread about you that you, you were aware of? I don't know. I mean, I get so many random things on Twitter. People just kind of... But you, you don't feel the need to reply on them in the same way. Maybe no. just pass them on to Hugo yeah. and he'll reply yeah, for I you. Do what, do they, what do they yeah. say? I, uh, just, I don't know. Just like... Um, don't, don't read go, them, Stephen. Just, Basically telling me to fuck off all the time, but um, in a clever way, or no, no, not really. no. just no, just no. Fuck we, off. we want to tell you to. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally all it says. <laughs> just the basics. Yeah, yeah, it's really back to basics. You just imagine somebody sort of sitting in their underpants in the basement. What of can I think house, of? I'm going to say something hammering to away at the yeah. Yeah. keyboard. Uh, <laughs> yes. and, uh, yeah, no. I th- always think the way is to be passive aggressive with them because I get people. Um, that's the only time I know anything's re- been repeated on telly because I go, oh, suddenly everyone hates me on Twitter and they'll say things, oh, you're so unfunny, you ruined my favourite show. So I always pretend I'm my own people, which obviously <laughs> makes me a bit crazy. <laughs> and I go, oh, thank you for your interest. Joe is on tour at the moment. Here are her tour dates and things. In terms of the, the fake news, serious implications for, for journalists who uh, try and do it by the book, who actually have to go out and search for a story. You know, much easier to lie in the bath and dream up a new story and then be able to, to put it out there. How, how is that going to be combated? How do you see, from your point of view, it, it could do you out of a business? Why is people, a lot of your journalism behind a paywall, why will people pay for a genuine news story when they can get loads of much more exciting fake news for free? Well, I mean, hopefully that's, that's the answer to its own question. You know, you pay for, you pay for something because it's not rubbish. Uh, you, you pay for something because you can trust it, which is sort of um, daunting. Uh, but um, that is the plan. Look, it's a, it's a problem. And in the end, it's solved really not by the media itself. The media has to be more careful. It's very easy to get caught up in, in lies without realising they're lies. When you're on a deadline, you're researching quickly, you check a fact, you check a quote, 
you don't necessarily realize quite where it's come from. Particularly, like a lot of the, the fake news that I came across when I was writing this article, one of the people I spoke to, the, this guy, he was, a, he was a satirist in Canada, and he wrote satire that got picked up. Basically, the problem with his satire was it was about, like, you know, Obama barricading himself in the White House and refusing to go if Trump got elected. This is before the election. The problem with his satire was that it wasn't very good. And literally hundreds of thousands of people didn't realize it was satire, and it was getting circulated. Uh, I mean, seriously, it was getting circulated massively by hundreds of thousands of people as, as if it were news. And I was saying to him, do you feel guilty that people didn't get your joke? And he was like, I don't know. I don't think so. I thought they were quite good jokes. I was like, I'm sorry, but they weren't. Um, but um, so it's, it's, very, it's very easy just for the not quite concentrating enough to get, to get fooled. So, people, so yes, media does need to be diligent. I suppose from his point of view, he's pleased that people were sharing them and he was well, hoping that they were getting the joke, but sad then to well, find out from you pointing it out that in fact nobody got the joke and it, it was just written as reality. Yeah, but he made a fortune either way. You know, I mean, I write satire. I don't get shared by 100,000 oh, people. But it's the artistic credibility he's now shattered. He's, he's a hurting <laughs> yeah. man. I'll take the cash, I think. But, um, but, I mean, but also, look, people need to be better at it. People need, people need to understand what's, what's reputable and what's not. And, what, and if something turns up from the American pretending newspaper Macedonia, then they probably don't have an exclusive about what's happening in the White House. You know, and, and so people can do better, I think. And Joe, you're on tour at the moment. Have you, as you go up and down the country, have you been finding Britain a, a very divided place, very different reactions in, in different places? Hugely divided. Nobody out there is like people I know, is what I found out. <laughs> that it really is a bubble of people that you, most people you know think the same as you, and um, you go out there, and um, everybody is very angry and voted leave. They won, but they're still angry. Um, like, you know, people who'd come see my show would be very mixed, but most of them, because most people are leave, and it's, it's kind of shocking, because you don't really know. They voted for all... A lot of the older ones, they voted for their youth. They voted for a time when they were happy, which was still when we were in the EU, so none of it really makes any sense, but it's like this, they've got a vision of something, um, and they are the majority of the people, and it's very, it is very weird. Well, and they're you... very angry if you try to point things out to them. But also, because I live in Scotland, so I'd been through the Scottish referendum, so I'd seen that with SNP supporters who were, they were like born-again Christians, and most of my friends were SNP supporters, and they were like talking to people they were full of hope and joy and it was gorgeous. And I was really envious, but I thought, I think you're wrong. Um, so it, it's very weird to go out there. So I don't really talk about politics in the show because I don't want half the audience to go, well, fuck off, you know, and leave. Because that most people want to change, but they just don't realise that they voted for the wrong change. I mean, obviously, if you want to get yourself out, out of that little bubble, mm. maybe read the comments under those Facebook posts. And yeah. you, you'll know. You'll know <laughs> yeah, don't, don't just read that. Yeah. 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 But read no, Nigel Farage, he's always talked about the people who were voting mm. for a time in the past, always saying that Britain was better in the 1950s. And you always think, well, how did he know, given that he was born in 1964? Mm. And then you could, of course, argue that's why Britain was better in the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> but also... People don't remember what things were like. I went to, I was in Berlin, and they have um, um, the DDR Museum, which is life in East Germany under communism. And we're walking around, and they've got, like, their kitchens. They've got, you know, the whole house, people's flats and the clothes they were wearing and everything. 
and there was a load of school children behind us, and they were looking out, going, "Oh my God, that's so awful! Oh look at that, it's terrible!" And they, oh, and they, all their food is in cans, and all. And me and my husband were like, "This is just life in the 70s. <laughs> this is just what the world was like. We didn't have nice stuff then, or anything nice to eat." Well, 1970s was supposedly when, as a nation, we were the most happy. That's what they reckon psychologists, isn't it? Which is a surprise because whenever people talk about the 1970s, they they always mm. assume it was blackouts, strikes, mm. gigantic flared trousers. And sort of bank holiday fights between mods and rockers. Yeah. But at least people were getting out in the fresh yeah. air doing some exercise, weren't they? Yeah. Speaking of a time before, before Nigel Farage, did you know that Nigel Farage is the same age, I think, to the month as Keanu Reeves? That's my favourite wow. fact. Just we blows we mind, now know the plot it? for John Wick 3, yeah. don't we? So. But there's something about referendums which are just so mm. divisive, I think. I, I remember going up to campaign for the no vote in the, the Scottish referendum and a bunch of us got up, got on the train up to Glasgow. I remember getting off the train um, and it was a group of MPs. So the SNP crew had heard that we were coming. So we were greeted by this reception committee. I always remember there was this one guy who'd got this um, like rickshaw, you know, people that drive the bikes around in the, and the entire back of the ricks, rickshaw was this massive speaker and he was blasting the tune from the Empire Strikes Back out of it. <laughs> and so basically saying to us, you know, you are the imperial stormtroopers mm. that are coming to colonize Scotland. And I was just like, I just, I, I don't live on that planet. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. And but how did you combat it? And then did we, you then get a, a cloak and a little lightsaber yeah. and just go with yeah, it? I should actually, yeah. I was like, yeah, the force is with me. <laughs> but, um, and then there was a proper punch-up. I mean, then we went right to the, around the steps of this quite famous uh, like library in, in Glasgow, and Gordon Brown came to speak. And then there was a proper punch-up in the crowd. Yeah. And I just thought, well, that's it. We've, this is <laughs> yeah. sort of mixture of 1980s. Democracy not going well at that point. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, I think a little bit of that, that in some ways, the, that referendum unleashed a fair mm -hmm. bit of the nastiness that we then saw in the EU referendum. Well, your, your tour show is called The Customer Is Always Wrong. Mm. Now, is that a risky title for a, a show, given that the audience oh, are customers. the customers? <laughs> <laughs> so You're basically like accusing them of wrong. being wrong. <laughs> no, I think it's continued annoyance that like, we've never had so much customer service and so much of people asking, were we happy with the service? But the service isn't better, and it, they just take up your time. And Because like, I'm staying in hotels a lot, and as soon as you've checked out, immediately they have to send you a little email going, oh, how was it? Were you happy? Like, it's a sort of really needy one-night stand, you know. And I did write back to Lucy at Best Western, whoever she is, to go, we're not friends. Mm -hmm. And it was just a one-night thing, and I won't be back, you know. Uh, so I do talk a lot about that, and also the... That, the fake friendliness, which is very, you know, they go, I think they've tapped into, oh, people feel isolated, so we'll make service very friendly, we'll, we'll use your name a lot. And it's fake, and you know it is, because I've asked the people, I asked the woman in pret a <laughs> when they go, oh, how's your week been? And I thought, why? And I said, and I said to her, can I just ask you, have you been told to say that? And she went, oh, is it not a good week then? <laughs> <laughs> but I lend this man at Marks and Spencer's, he told me they have been told to talk to people, 
And because uh, I did a routine about it saying, oh, they're always saying the same thing. And he came up to me afterwards. He says, well, I, I'm the consultant and I teach them how to have conversations. And they've actually got a choice of 10 things that they can say. That's so awful. And I said, like, why don't they sack you, pay the people at the tills more, then they'll be happier and they'll just chat anyway. But, it, but it's just very, a fake thing and that thing. And it's very NLP where they use your name and they say, like, can I... What can myself help yourself with? And that's somehow... And that's not even correct. I don't know where that came from. What do they say? What can myself, can myself help, help yourself help with? Wow. And I go, oh, yes. If, and then you say it back, because they're doing it, and you go, oh, what can... Oh, if yourself could help myself, find myself. You know, it's like you don't even know who you're talking to anymore. So, yeah, what you came in for, wouldn't you, yeah. at that point? <laughs> I think myself will just leave, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've also been writing... Sarah Millican started a, an, an online... Um, Magazine, yes, standard, um, standard, standard issue, and you standard read a issue. couple of very, uh, very moving articles about your sister mm. and her cancer, which I found very helpful. There was one, one of the bits in your article you quoted one of the um, the Macmillan nurses, mm. one of the brilliant things she said to your sister, which was that you know I've met a lot of people with cancer, but I've uh, I've never met you and your cancer, and that turned mm. out to be a very important thing to say. Um, my mum died from cancer, and I remember when. You know, when she had cancer, when we were, we were talking about it, I would often talk about other people who I'd found out had got cancer and all the things I'd found out about cancer. Yeah. And she was always very sweet about it, but <laughs> I never really thought it was probably helping. And yeah. it, it sort of plays into that. Yes, because you don't know what to do at first when we found out my sister had cancer. And she had said to me... Um, well, she had emailed me, which I actually think is a very good way to tell people because then they don't have to cope with your emotion immediately and you get a little chance to go, oh. So the first thing I did was look it up and then go, oh, I don't really understand what any of that says. And then I read the next email, which said, don't look anything up because <laughs> you won't know what it means. But also, it's like um, cancer is so varied that you're going to get... So then what I did was I didn't learn anything about it which makes you quite ignorant when the person dies because you're sort of not expecting it <laughs> because you believe their narrative. But actually, that's a very good thing because, if, because they're hopeful. And my sister was always hopeful and make plans, and she would make plans. And she was in a hospice at this point, and we're like, you can't move at all. But we're making plans. And just go with whatever their scenario is because they have to keep positive because it's too terrible to think about. So she would be uh, very positive and we would make sort of plans that she knew as well that she was not going to ever fulfill. But it's also that thing of um, talking about what they want to talk about and the world they want to talk about. Because some people coming in, they were too full of the outside world and she's in a hospice. And I could see that that sort of, sort of upset her, just jarred with her because she was very happy talking about the little world she'd created with um, the doctors and nurses and everything that was going on there. I, f I found it very interesting the way that you were describing the article, which I, I'd recommend mm. everybody to read, the way that your sister had things where some things were appropriate and or some things were inappropriate. Yeah, and that became kind of a joke that uh, my sister would say that... And some, uh, some staff were inappropriate. Um, some doctor who wore a mustard dress that she found very distasteful was inappropriate. Because um, it, it would bring, bring the mood down. Yeah, she it? was like, well, what's she doing? She doesn't she know there's people in here with cancer and now we've got to look at that awful fucking dress. Right? <laughs> you know, she'd taken against the doctor in other ways, you know, um, and she had particular doctors. And then, because you, you're very, like, you just sense things about people. I, I was wondering when exactly a mustard dress would be appropriate. Yeah, well, you see, this is the thing. Or, or, um, I was thinking maybe during a, a toddler's mm. party and they've just brought out the cake, these energy levels are too high. 
bring on somebody with a mustard, mustard dress, dress. Oh, and it just bring, yeah. brings the mood right down. Yeah, and there's, there's things of then when um, she was on morphine, that's a bit difficult because they're off their heads. So you go in, and I was a bit scared because I was looking at her husband and I was going, I don't know what she's talking about because it happened to be on a Sunday and a lot of people in the hospital had brought dogs. And my sister was just laughing, going, oh, it's dog day afternoon. And she would get a phrase, and she would just enjoy it. And Martin just said, her husband just goes, oh, just go with it. And then we had the best fun, just crazy conversations. And then, because it was dogs, we had this whole conversation about whether dogs should be allowed to have wine. And, uh, and my sister thought they should. And weirdly, it, made connect, it was connected, because my brother is a Catholic priest. And my sister was going, oh, I think they should have wine, but not if they're Catholic. I don't think they should have it if they're Catholic. <laughs> And it all sort of made sense or, to us. And or then, maybe they should have it, but with a little bit of bread at the same time. Or <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. But they shouldn't be allowed to be doctors, just nurses. You could have a doctor, like a nurse dog would be fine. She could imagine that. And it was really good fun because she sort of knew she was being funny, but it's that thing of just, just going into, into their world. And other things that were inappropriate were get well cards. Um, when, like, she's got Christmas lung, ca- cards with Boris lung cancer and she's had a, a, a brain tumour removed and she went, look at this, a fucking get well card. You know, it's just, it's so inappropriate. It's just, it's not, yeah. you know, so you find, like, funny cards or anything that you can do to kind of cheer them. But I think it's following their lead was the best advice I got to go where they want to go and talk about what they want and don't be upset. That was the worst thing. People who she hadn't seen... And people lose privacy as well when you're in hospital because everyone thinks they can come and see you at any point. And if you were at home, people wouldn't do that. They would phone you. So it was a big thing that we made to always make sure you check with her partner. Is it all right to visit? Because who else is visiting? Because just because you're ill, you shouldn't lose your privacy. You know, Because there's still people who should go, I, I never like them anyway. Just because I'm dying doesn't seem fair that they get to come and fucking sit at the end of my bed. You know? <laughs> Just to plug uh, what we've got coming up uh, on the Selectivist Action Group, last Monday of the month. Um, next month, we have Owen Jones from The Guardian. We have Jess Phillips, MP, and we've got Rich Hall. So it should be a, a cracking bill next month. April, we've got Nick Clegg and Matt Ford. And for May, we've got Romish Ranganathan, Lucy Powell, MP, and also Daniel Finkelstein from The Times. So uh, if anybody listening on the podcast got any questions, then please go to the website, andyparsons.co.uk. But now, the Slacktivist Action Group. Do we have a question? Hands up for a question. There'll be a microphone coming around. Gentlemen in the second row. On a serious note, you know, it, there's, a, there's a, president, a mad president of the White House who says, make America great again. There's a complete nutty left-wing leader of the Labour Party. And there's a female Conservative Prime Minister. And it's 1980 all over again, isn't it? But in 1980, the SDP was formed, and there was a big centrist movement that almost won an election, did very well. Um, do we think that there is now going to be a serious middle-ranking movement that will, that will break some of this deadlock? Well, I'm, I'm sad we haven't got time for any answers. Now, <laughs> I, can get, I can answer as well, if you like. No, 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 no. I think that's probably going to be mainly for you, Stephen, but we'll, we'll go through if anybody's got anything else. I mean, we sort of saw that movie in 1983 with the SDP and it didn't end well. So I also think with our electoral system as we have it, you know, I mean, UKIP got four million votes uh, at the last election and one MP. So it is very, very difficult to build a new political party and to get traction for that party 
in our electoral system in a way which gives you any significant presence uh, in Parliament. Um, I think there's interesting things happening in France, the rise of Emmanuel Macron as a kind of you know, holding the centre, the voice of um, moderation and uh, sensible politics, I think is a very interesting development. Let's hope that he succeeds in seeing off Marine Le Pen. I think in, in this country, it is just within the electoral system very difficult to do. I also uh, am, you know, I'm a socialist and therefore an optimist. And I think that we will manage to uh, get the Labour Party back onto the path to uh, electoral relevance again, but it's going to take us a while. Hugo, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I don't think there'll be a new party. I think it can. I think it can flip surprisingly quickly. I think if you look at um, you look at Stoke particularly, but also Copeland a bit, um, there is more of an appetite than we often realise for centrist sanity. And sooner or later, there's going to be somebody electable who can fulfil that appetite. You know, um, I mean, if Labour can just pull itself together, and I wonder if it's in fact liberating for you that it's just so horrible at the moment and so nuts. Because like when when your party's a bit shit, you've got to be nice about it. Mm. But when it's this bad, you can you can you, you don't just need to you can cut loose. look horrified. You can <laughs> cut you can cut you can cut loose. But I mean, I can I can see at some point in the next five years somehow Labour pulling itself together, and then there is an opposition, and then the the gravity is in the centre rather than being on the extreme, and then things do kind of change a bit. We will be reporting back on this, ladies and gentlemen. That is all we have got time for. Uh, um, if you are listening on the podcast, then please um, do subscribe. It helps keep the podcast free. We'll just wait very briefly for people to do that. Excellent. They've all done that now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so uh, if you get a chance, so please spread the word of the Selectivist Action Group. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, in which case we are lethal. That's what we like to say at the Selectivist Action Group. We have got the people coming up, so please let people know last Monday of the month, and the podcast usually comes out the day after that. Thanks very much to all the guests. Um, We always like to try and suggest something for people to do in the interim between the podcast. So uh, we were talking about the Macmillan nurses. They're they're always looking for volunteers. Even if people have only got a couple of hours during the month, they do a, a... a brilliant job. Their website is macmillan.org.uk. There's a thing called the Volunteering Village. Go along there if you, you have got some time that you can give. Just don't wear a mustard dress would be the, uh, <laughs> the recommendation. And knowing what's going on in the news, very important, but fake news is, is going on all the time. And I was a victim of either of wrong news or fake news. I'm not quite still sure which, but I will do my research. I got stung by a jellyfish. And the lifeguard, I was in agony. He said, oh, piss on yourself. So I went to the loo and did it to then find out it's complete myth. Doesn't <laughs> help at all. I, I was uh, like, yeah, I've yeah. heard that one as well. And then the re- it, it was even worse that he actually, the reason he said he'd suggested it was he'd seen it work for Monica in an episode of Friends. <laughs> <laughs> so very distressing. But many thanks to our guests, and we look forward to putting some Facebook comments on Joe's page, which he won't ever read. We, we look forward to finding out what Mossad is doing via, via Hugo's Twitter. And uh, good luck. Good luck with... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good luck to Stephen. Thank you very much to all our guests and thank you for coming tonight. Thank you. Stephen Kinnick, Hugo Rifkin, Joe Corfield. Thank you and good night. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.